This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today I would like to welcome a guest to Dreamland who is familiar to most of you and all too familiar to some. Jeremy Vaney is with us today, and Jeremy Vaney is going to be with us a good bit over the future, in the future, because he's going to be doing Dreamland once a month. On the last weekend in every month, Jeremy will take over as host of Dreamland. And over the years, uh, that slot has been filled by Jim Mars, William Henry, and I believe a couple of others early on, but I don't really recall. In any case, it used to be that I did three shows a month and a another host, guest host, did the fourth. And then when... Um, William stopped doing it and did his own show, and then Jim came in, and then Jim left and then passed on. I just was doing four shows a month, which is great, and I love doing four shows a month, and I would keep on. But there are some very special voices out there. Some of them are really very extraordinary, and Jeremy's is one of them, very frankly. He's a completely different viewpoint, a completely different gestalt, a completely different approach from me and but strangely enough despite that he's also very good <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're gonna have a lot of fun with jeremy uh and uh, when and but today we're gonna have a lot of fun with jeremy in a completely different way because he has written another extremely annoying but extremely fun book called aliens the first and final disclosure and I am looking at in my hot ha- hands for a copy which is emblazoned with the uh, phrase "not for resale." So I, I will this be on all of them, Jeremy, or or just just on this these few that you've done? Because you say in here that you only have fifty readers. So yeah, no, it just 50- goes to the it just goes to the people I can't trust. So. Oh, I see. Oh, I, well, I understand that perfectly. That that would make sense as to why I would have one because I would be crazy if I I don't even trust me. And I, so why would you? Uh, okay, I am I'm going to read from the back of the book while pretending to remember your curriculum vitae. Uh, Jeremy Vaney is the author of several books, including Urgency and um, I am to tell you this and. I am to tell you it is fiction. Uh, I think we've we've certainly done I am to tell you this on Dreamland. I don't know if we did Urgency or not. It might be before my time. Uh, he's had a lifetime of mysterious experiences, ranging from what are commonly called spiritual to what are con- unfortunately called alien. This book ties them all together in conversational language, and shows us where to look next. Um, uh, what it actually does is it takes us into a labyrinth of mirrors with a guy who can actually laugh about being trapped in a labyrinth of mirrors with the rest of us. And I'm very impressed with that. And on that note, welcome to Dreamland, Jeremy Vaney. Well, thank you, Whitley, for having me. Thank you for... I know you claim that you've had other hosts, but I'm going to say you're passing the torch. Passing the torch, Whitley. No. Um, Not yet. 
Thanks for having me on. I should apologize to anyone. My video feed for your show will not look as bad as my video feed does now. It's This is just for you. Special for you, Whitley. Well, it's very strange. I don't understand why your video feed looks like this. Don't move around so much. You, you, don't, you don't blur. In fact, talk okay. about moving your mouth, and maybe maybe it won't be so blurred. Uh, I'll do my we best. Were, we were we were laughing about this earlier. I actually I learned to do this uh, when I was a kid and was very interested in ventriloquism. But when I married Anne, she said, "No ventriloquism." I said, "Well, why not?" She said, "Because all ventriloquists are boring." Uh, she she. <laughs> She, she, that wasn't. That is not true. There are some extraordinary ventriloquists in this world, but it became completely obvious to her after I showed her my act that I was not one of them. <laughs> so she said, "Well, if you get a ventriloquist dummy in the house, fine. I'd like. I'll burn it." I said, "Okay, then no ventriloquism. Okay, but this is not going to be ventriloquism. Jerry, Will, Jeremy, Willie really is going to allow me to talk for myself." Um, this book, uh, the first and final disclosure, let's, let's start by talking about disclosure in general, since disclosure is going to happen, um, uh, when in about six weeks, six months, six years. Yeah. Or yeah. So let, something like that. Let, let's, <laughs> let's talk about, let me read something here from the book. Uh, let me, yeah, from the first, okay. Since it was published in 1998, the paradigm clock has been reset three times. The new time setting of 11.58 p.m. is intended to inform the public and the press that disclosure is near. This is from the paradigm clock disclosure wire, um, compliments of Stephen Bassett on July the 17th, which is not long ago, except it was July the 17th, 2000. So, Jeremy, where are we? (laughs) Well, uh, to my mind, where we are is another round of someone trying to control the narrative and make it about um, ostensibly aliens, but also because the people trying to control the narrative now are actually the military, oddly enough, um, trying to provoke aliens while not actually saying aliens. So um, to my mind, it's it's just another uh, narrative. It's just another ruse to say, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And before it was all self-contained within ufology, um, to do that for people to, you know, make money off that and all, all the stuff we all know and love. Um, but now with the military actually doing it, I think it's about funding. I I think they're doing it. I mean, it may not be just about funding, but I think there's a bigger purpose. It may even be about military funding and, uh, trying to control a population that they see has taken off in being controlled by QAnon, for instance. Like there's certainly a very large, dare I say, mainstream audience for people who want to engage with um, like an internet message board and its accompanying blogs to try to like figure out the world 
And the military has been perfecting those types of psyops forever. So now is the best time probably to roll that out and see what they can do. And just as an example of the military funding thing, I give a couple in the book. I mean, I just don't think it can be a coincidence that that we see these um, uh, these UFO footages or UAP footages um, coming up out of the water and we're told about they can come up out of the water and zip around Navy vessels and all that. And what they want funding for uh, is to build things like, um, you know, submarines that carry submersible drones that can do just that, come up out of the water, zip around, all of that sort of stuff. So I think, I, I think it's what is evolving here, to my mind, is a case of the military saying, look, we don't know where this is from. We're not saying this is alien. We're not saying it's foreign. We don't know what it is, but we know that we must defend against it. So give us money for these, you know, to build these things. You know, the fact that the military is involved is, and it is primarily the military, it's the Defense Department that's involved. Uh, there's nothing about any of the other departments. For example, uh, why not the Centers for Disease Control? Uh, why has there never been any government-funded studies of the of the close encounter witnesses, because at least none that have ever reached the light of day. Maybe there have been some secret ones. I, I don't know. But there are all kinds of ways of going into getting into this. This is a rock ribbed assumption that this is aliens from another planet. It never even goes past that. But, you know, we're going to play around with that a lot in this show, and Jeremy plays around with it a lot. It's fundamental to the way he, he does this. Jeremy does not sit on assumptions like the alien hypothesis or crypto-terrestrials or uh, mysterious visitors from other dimensions. He doesn't sit in, on any of those stools. And that's one of the reasons Annie, my Annie back there, just loved Jeremy's work and uh, in general and she because he, he keeps the question open. Uh, now... Uh, the military, I noticed after 2017 was when QAnon really took off. And it, it's interesting that what happened in 2017 was that suddenly the public, which had been basically snickering about rectal probe jokes, uh, compliments of The Simpsons and uh, 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 other shows for years, suddenly thought, wait a minute. If these things are buzzing around in the sky, what about my rectum? What about my kids? And they're lying to us. And what else might they be lying to us about? And there was this little piece of clickbait out there that said, yeah, they're lying to you, all right. And uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, the lies are, are maybe mega. Maybe there's a lot more. Maybe QAnon makes some sense. Maybe Pizzagate is real. I mean, we go from we go from lying about UFOs to believing everything is a lie in just one single breath. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but uh, that could be true. Um, so, 
I don't know. The, the, the QAnon thing is so even more than that, you know, as I sort of talk about in the book, like I, I think QAnon goes hand in hand with the pandemic, um, you know, toward later <laughs> with the pandemic denialists and they sort of become this smorgasbord of people who just deny reality. And, and it could be because of the old tried and true. Well, if, you know, we just don't know what anyone is, uh, and authority is telling us is true. Therefore, we might as well just believe our own research, as it were. Um, but I think that that is all a psychological smokescreen for uh, the world is collapsing around us and we feel helpless and scared and we're getting angry. You know, like I really think that's sort of what's motivating us. I, I think you may be right about that. I think that the, I mean, it's obvious the way the, this insane weather is going all around the world. Uh, if it's if it's not raining twelve inches an hour for two days, uh, there's no rain for two years. I and mean, you know it's really, and you know it, it's it's a mess, and it's pretty much all happening as it was expected in Superstorm, by the way. And of course, when Superstorm came out, it was debunked and la- laughed about. I mean. How could a flying saucer nut and Art Bell possibly say anything true? But that doesn't doesn't that feed into the narrative in a way because it's it's like uh, uh, we turn out to be right, and Al Gore gets the I think the Nobel Prize for being wrong about his about gradualism that we had time when we don't have time we have no time whatsoever, and we didn't have time when he got that Nobel Prize either, right and. And, and now the you you see these things that the glaciers are melting four times faster than expected in Dreamland, and everyone's saying, "Well, how could that be?" You just pick up Superstorm, and you'll see how it could be. It's been like that in the past. This is not new. This is the way it unfolds at this point in an inner in, in in the end of at the end of an interglacial, and with the added problem that all this carbon dioxide has been spewed into the atmosphere by us instead of volcanoes, which is how it usually happens. Uh, fortunately for us, volcanoes haven't added to our problem, but they may any day. You never know. Okay, well, that's sort of on the side. Uh, what is the military going to do with this, do you think? Where are they going to take it? Because they want to take it somewhere, and you have to ask, you know, what do they want funding for if there's nothing here that's dangerous? Or is there something here that's... Well... Jeremy, you tell me. Sure. We are here. (laughs) Uh, We're dangerous. And, you know, just... Let's just think about this for a second. I mean, one of the the theories as to why Putin invaded Ukraine this time is that he has cancer and is dying of cancer. And so he wants to what? Not better himself, not get right inside... You know, I mean, essentially, he's threatening to nuke the world or blow up nuclear reactors that would uh, uh, essentially nuke the world. And uh, this is one man, you know, with, quote unquote, power. So if that's true, and it does, I don't know that it is that he is dying of cancer and all, and this is the result of that or partially result of that. Um, But Certainly it's a theory, and the reason it's a theory is that it could be true, and it could be true because this is the way 
that when we're so disconnected inside, we react to our own mortality, you know, to our own lack of control. And if you can puppeteer a government, well, that plays out in bigger ways than, you, you know, just you or me. Um, but if that is the space where we're all at, then, you know, the enemy is us, you know, like it, it doesn't even matter that we're in a global climate crisis. Um, we're still threatening to nuke the world. It, do, it, it doesn't matter that, that we're... Or look at the Chinese. They're, you know, they're, the, center, the center of their country is dying of thirst. And what are they concerned about? Throwing their money and, their, and the lives of their boys at Taiwan. And yeah. screwing up and their this economy is the, way it's, the same way Russia screwed up is for nothing. It's like this is the way insane. it's sort of always been. Yeah, well, I mean, this know, is sort of the way it's been at least in my lifetime. And uh, so I think if you look at the evolution of things to claim we're at war with to get funding for, it's gotten vaguer and vaguer, right? And so the last incarnation of that was the war on terror which means nothing. It's the war on an idea. So anything can be terror, right? But now it's even vaguer than that. It's, we've got to study these unidentified aerial phenomena <laughs> and go to war with phenomena or build up some arsenal against an unidentified, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I just think that that's so perfectly vague and and yet at the same time is already captured by the popular imagination that you don't even have to sell it. You just have to say, okay, this is where we're going for a good portion of the public to go along with it. And you're right. I mean, it's like here we are at the end of the world and we're still concerned about money. You're right. You know, and uh, building exactly. up arms. Uh, it's and, just crazy. And you know what we're at the end of is something for free dreamlanders. We got to take a break. So um, free dreamlanders. Listen up, do what you're supposed to do, and don't be a free dreamlander anymore. I would love it if there were, was no free dreamlanders at all, because everybody was still here, but they were all subscribing. And then maybe I could pay Jeremy some small fee for his effort that he is putting into this show. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about a big fee, I'm, Jeremy, don't worry. I'm, I'm talking about maybe 10 bucks, but... At 25 at the outside. But anyway, we'll be right back. We're back. We're talking to Jeremy Vaney, his new book, Aliens, The First and Final Disclosure, which is a really deep dive into some very, very interesting ideas and meanings and approaches to the close encounter phenomenon in general. And Jeremy is a close encounter witness. I don't think you call yourself an alien abductee, or do you? <laughs> well, in the book, I, I, I go back to my roots and start off as an alien abductee again. Because I think I, I used to think that or suspect it, you know, way back in the probably high school or college, um, well, high school and college. But I, I, honestly, reading Communion uh, really helped me to not have to keep thinking that <laughs> uh, and see that there's so much, so many more possibilities um, 
so in the book, I, I start off, you know, the sort of joke of it is I start off as an alien abductee going back to my roots since that's what everyone since 2017 understands. Um, but then as I'm talking about being an abductee, I'm actually talking my way out of being an abductee and sort of showing how it can't be true. There can't, you can't, I can't be an alien abductee because there aren't aliens. Um, and I, think I make a pretty good case, or actually I think nature cultures, more to the point, make a good case for us. Um, that al- The term alien is sort of an invented, westernized, disconnected word, and it, it, it's not, it signifies our own uh, unhealthy uh, disposition in the world more than it does any reality out there. It's a disconnect from a very old and complex mythology that it goes all the way back to earliest times, a, a mythology of things seen that we don't understand or things that enter our lives that we don't understand. Yeah, entities. I'll give you an example from my own life. This happened, uh, it could have been, it wasn't la- it, a year ago, February. I live in Santa Monica and it's there are a lot of, Near where I live, unfortunately, I don't live in a very beautiful part of San Monica. I wish I did. But there is a very beautiful part nearby. And I was walking down a lovely street, which is tree-lined and overhung by trees, taking an evening walk. And I heard this bzzz overhead. And I thought, well, that sounds like a dragonfly. You know, it's February. What could it be? I looked up. And maybe at an altitude of 10 feet, maybe 8 to 10 feet. It wasn't high at all. It was just almost so low I could touch it. There flew past what appeared to be a little man wearing a little overcoat and buzzing along on little wings, like Hmm. very fast-moving, like uh, dragonfly wings. And I thought to myself, that is the weirdest dragonfly I've ever seen. And is that a Burberry or an Aquascutum? And it went on off down the middle of the street toward the ocean and simply disappeared into the distance. Now, I would submit to you that that was not an alien. And, but I would also submit to you that I'm talking about the fundamental experience of, the, of these unknown entities and beings. And I'm not going to ask you what you think it is or was because you can't answer that question and neither can I and no one can. And the the only thing I can say is maybe it was in my head and maybe it wasn't. But it was still a nice raincoat. (laughs) (laughs) Even though quite small, obviously. (laughs) And then I have to ask, it was a sunny day and it was... uh, bright, clear evening. So why in the world did he need to wear a raincoat at all? Um, Where are we, Jeremy? If you say they're not aliens, so definitely they're not aliens. And I have a tendency to agree with you. And I'm trying here to open a big door. A big door through which a little man flew one afternoon in late afternoon in February two years ago. 
Can you just take it from there, or am I being bad? Sure. Do you, you want you want me you want me to tell you what they are? Uh, <laughs> I want you to tell me whatever you want to tell me. After all of that, because I've read okay. Aliens: The First and Final Disclosure, and I think you're going to have some interesting stuff to say. Well, uh, the, the first thing is you had said before, you know, that I'm not married to any idea, and you went down a list of ideas I'm not married to, and one of the ideas I'm not married to is the thesis of my book, <laughs> which I make clear in the book that it, so what I'm going to tell you, uh, the book says, and what I am currently thinking this is about, uh, is that there are, there is an interdimensionality to it. Um, but that it is intimately connected with us that whoever these beings are, are both autonomous, but also sharing our same, space interdimensionally however that works out with science i don't know but that they are both us and not us at the same time uh and that when they speak to us um often they use archetypal you know they speak to us in archety- using archetypes and using symbolic language that bypasses our conscious sense of self and speaks to us directly um probably in the hopes of waking us up into our own sense of wholeness, because us waking us up is essentially them also waking up because we're their unconscious baggage at this point. Um, if, if that's all making sense, uh, then let me add this layer of crazy to it. And this, I do sort of know from experience that the universe per se is alive, is a living being. And, uh, the universe wants us to remain in the universe. <laughs> and so if you wake up out of the universe, if you wake up into this universalness, I mean, into this multiversalness, um, and, and it's not that there's something bad in your way. It's not like the universe isn't secretly your enemy because you are the universe. It's that uh, it, it takes a certain finesse to wake up out of it. So in other words, like with just take spiritual light and enlightenment experiences. Um, these happen with the death of self. The death of self is the death of thought. The universe is thought. You are thought. You are a thought construct. And when that self dies and there is nothing, that nothingness is consciousness that transcends and includes thought, transcends and includes the universe. And the universe will let you do that. So provided that you come back with novel experiences, talk amongst your friends and build out this sort of imaginal architecture um, that becomes, you know, archetypal realms and dream stuff. But it doesn't the universe it's not really in the universe's best interest for you to die and not come back uh, for you to have an ego death and remain this enlightened, eh, you know. So to do that takes another level of. uh not trying. <laughs> let's let's really confuse it because if you try, that's just more thought getting in the way. So if you can take, if you can see what I'm saying there, and superimpose that over multi-dimensional, you know, beings who have already achieved something like that, already are out of their own sense of the universe, their universe, um, have woken up into a multi-versal sense of self. Then they're looking at us and they're going, okay, you're a part of me. I'm a part of you. I know it. You consciously don't know it. And how do I speak to that? Because anything I do to get you to believe me 
is going to ultimately end up just another story, another thought, another belief system for you, because yours, you want to go on as you are, as a sense of self, you know, in the universe and all that. And you want to feel powerful and you want to feel like you're special and all that, all these trappings of interacting with this other, right? So how does the other authentically and usefully speak to us? It can't be a direct conversation that we can have some control over, if that makes sense. Uh, so I think somewhere in there, if this, I don't know if this is making sense. I hope it is, but um, uh, something in there is more, ironically, realistic to, to what we see with experiencers and what we know to be our experiences than like aliens coming down from another planet to do galactic NAFTA, <laughs> you know, like, like that just ain't it. Well, why are you so sure? Because, um, you know, I mean, I did get raped and I still have the scar tissue from it. It happened. It was a physical experience and there is something in my ear. Uh, yeah. Wait a minute. Is it gone? Nope, it's not gone. There it is. It's something in my ear that has been, an attempt has been made to remove it, and it's a physical object. It's there. Uh-huh. Uh, so something happened, something physical. Well, here's and, the thing, Whitley. And, and, and yeah, no, the, no. The, they're, they're... the UFPs that they've made videos of are there. So where are we right. going? And we're going to find out in just a minute, uh, Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take another brief break and we shall return. So, yes, there is a physical aspect to it. Um, in fact, uh, I think there has to be a rational aspect, a physical aspect. There has to be some sort of anchoring here in some sense, um, because I think the part that is, is right that you've talked about is our need to perceive them to be here. You know, this sense that that they need us to sort of literally pull them through in some way. And I think that's true. I think that's true individually, and I think it's true collectively. But I, I think, um, you know, I've got the quote from that one, you know, UFO contactee case where the policeman uh, talks to an alien and says, you know, what do you want? And he says, we want you to believe in us, but not too much. I, I think it really speaks to that. Um so here's how I would contextualize what happened to you. Because, and this is easy for me to do in a way because I just watched your travel channel uh, documentary on, on the visitors. And, um, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit because I think it's great and gets to the heart of what we're talking about in two ways. Uh, for this, it's the night that you had the rape and uh, you were afraid that they were coming from, for your mind. And, you know, you'd said, oh, you're going to, destroy a beautiful mind or whatever the quote was. I mean, that night seems of all the stuff that's happened to you seems spectacularly terrifying and specifically also terrifying for you as Whitley Strieber, as a writer, as a man. I mean, your mind is everything, but also being raped is as a man in society then at that point, at least, completely unacceptable yeah and also, so i think when you, yeah oh no i just said it, it turned out that to everyone except me it was hilarious which was awful well okay and, and there's that but i mean at the time i mean I, I think that it is an imprint on you 
and on the culture at large through you that this happened. So did it literally happen? Yeah, it literally happened. But is it about that literal physical happening? I don't think so. I think it's about the effect uh, it has on you in waking up to this being in your life and keeping it in your life. And also, you know, oddly, wanting to keep it in question, not wanting to rush to an answer and get it out of your life. No, and then this was, translates to your audience. She was she was saying, yeah. don't don't do that. Don't keep it. In, don't don't conclude. You 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 have memories, but you don't have certain experiences, and you don't have any pictures. There was no video, so you don't know. You don't have any any physical evidence, so you don't know. But of course, now I have the implant, and I had the the rape happen too. So, but go ahead. Yeah, well, so I think that that that's sort of what it is. It's a thing that you can't deny it to a person who would want to deny it and bury it and keep it unconscious or just say it was a nightmare or just say, you know, whatever, all the excuses that we come up with for ourselves, um, they have an answer for it. And the answer isn't an answer in the sense of this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. But it's an answer in terms of this is mystery. This is a mystery. This is probably mystery with a capital M. It's something you're going to be engaging with a long time. And even if everyone laughs it off, you can't deny it because you know what happened to you. And if you have an implant, uh, you know that you've got an implant. And if you have it taken out and it turns out to be like glass or something, even that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what it is. It just matters that it's there and you have a memory of how it got there. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of the trickster joke is that it turns out to be something else. But that's because the function that we give it isn't real. We want it to be something alien and obvious, a tracking device or whatever it is. But what if it isn't? You know, what if it is simply there for you to not be able to deny yourself your own experiences so that you engage with this and continue making this conscious for everybody, including yourself? I want to turn back to the book, to Aliens, the first and final disclosure. I'm going to read a passage from it and... I'm interested to see what you have to say, because this is uh, this passage really stopped me. It was really fascinating. Fascinating book, by the way, folks. It's got a lovely, fun sense of humor about it. Jerry, Jeremy takes himself extremely seriously in a very funny way, so which is cool. Believe it or not, I'm not here to tell you psychic abilities are unreal. They are real. I have experienced them. In fact, one better. I went through a short period of having spontaneous visions that sound suspiciously like remote viewing. In fact, two better. One such vision was a bird's eye view of a gray alien rounding a bend in a metallic-looking corridor. He was walking with a bit of a hop to his step in my direction. The moment he stepped directly in front of me, he turned and stared fiercely at me, until I faded away. Now, here's one thing. The hop in his step. I have many letters that specifically mention that hop. And so are you telling me what level of reality did this unfold on? Did you, were you in a corridor on a spaceship and his spaceship? And he came hopping along and he was pissed and you faded away. 
<laughs> that's happened? the magic question. I don't know. I mean, I, it's literally just that. I mean, these vi- when I was going through this period of these visions, um, one one of them was literally I was from the you know just seeing from the point of view of a sidewalk as like bike and car tires go by and people walk by. There's no sound. I can't move my sense of perception. I can just see. And that's all I saw. And it's for like, I don't know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And then that's it. Another was a bird's eye field of a a view of a field. Others seem to be like I'm sitting across the table from, well, one was a military person who's yelling ostensibly at me or in my direction. One was watching a family as, you know, mom and dad made breakfast for the kids before they went off to school. I mean, just innocuous things. And then this. <laughs> so are these real events in the world? Are these some uh, impersonal imagination that I've briefly tapped into or was shown? Uh I really can't answer that. I, I don't know. My tendency, of course, is to say that there was no alien in a spaceship. Um, so I don't know what that was. Well, you know, I've had the same sort of experiences, and my tendency is to say there was an alien in a spaceship. So, but I, I mean, I, I would, my, my uh, take on it is this. Neither one of us is wrong, and neither one of us is right. It's not just that it's in question, but that is literally where we are with this. Neither one of us is wrong or right. And, I, you know, I could even get into the Gettier paradox, which shows that nothing is definite in this level of reality. Nothing. Well, I mean, I guess the, the angle that I take on that in terms of aliens not being real um, is... That the, again, the sense of what it means to say an alien, like wherever these beings are from, even if they're from another planet in our universe, that doesn't make them alien. That the thing of alien is a divide between you and, I mean, nature cultures would say family. Everything is family because they understand themselves as interconnecting with all. One would think that that, since that is our natural sense of being, and since the universe is life, that life elsewhere uh, would also, you know, I don't know if it's at their pinnacle, but sort of near there, would at least be interrelating that way, uh, which would answer why, for instance, they care um, that we blow ourselves up or they care about climate change or any of that in the, in the, you know, like aliens who are just so foreign to us and could be enemies or adversaries, um, wouldn't care to do that, wouldn't care about that stuff, and probably wouldn't survive themselves to get off their planet in the first place. You know, um, you you touched on something very interesting a little while ago, which is the this idea that you've sort of turn, returned to of them needing us to somehow make themselves real. And that they are a dependency in a way. They can't be here without us. And maybe that's their real motive for wanting us to survive. Because if they lose us, they lose access to the world as we see it. How do you respond to that? Does that make some sense or not? 
Yeah, I think that's possible. And I also think it's possible that um, the less uh, perceived anyone is, the vaguer we become. Like we are all a bunch of perceivers perceiving each other. And so the more, for instance, we strip down the trees, kill off the animals, you know, go down the list, the less the sort of vaguer we become. And I almost wonder if that's not part of the reason that we become angry and disconnected and, and unconscious as we're going along here when we should be getting like more conscious and more smart in our decision making and all of that. It's going the opposite way. And I wonder if it's because if you kill off enough beings around you who are perceiving you to be here, <laughs> uh, do you become stripped of of aspects of yourself? They're no longer here because those specific beings and species perceive in a specific way. And if they're not here, that way isn't here. And so if you translate that out, uh, does that work multidimensionally as well? You know, that's a very interesting thought because uh, it could be that that their anger and their negativity, which seems so palpable at times, has to do with the fact that they see in us a death wish. I know they do because I've had that encounter that i guess uh knowledge from them that that as far as i can tell they understand all the things that are happening on this planet as being pretty much because of population too many people in other words the planet's dying because it's too many people and they're jostling for space and that makes them warlike and they're liable to blow each other up and there's but at the same time if we're gone, then in some funny sense, so are they. Our relationship with them is gone. And with that, their reality in this, the context of this world. So they're, I, they're on our side and they're also furious at us. I want to, there's something I want to go back to from that documentary about you. Sure. <laughs> that it, okay, great. So the, to my mind, the reason that that documentary is, actually very powerful is because you strip away the images and the reporters narrating for you and all that stuff. And what you're left with is a man sitting in a chair telling the story of his life. And also some witnesses who can back that up um, either directly or in the case of Deb Cobble, she's had things happen before you guys even knew each other uh, yeah. to her, that sounded suspiciously like what happened to you. So this validation, but the sense of storytelling from you is real. And whatever my, you know, problems with hypnosis are, the fact that you've got these hypnosis tapes from decades ago where you're screaming in terror and you never released those tapes back then, and you're just releasing them, you know, for now. unknown country and for this documentary, speaks to your authenticity because that would have backed you up back then. That would have been spectacularly shocking to hear back then for everyone who was saying, oh, who is this guy? This is nonsense. But you never did that. And so you put these things together, and I think it brings you to a place where, like, oh, yeah, it cuts through the BS of, uh, of like, right, this is real. And you don't get that with documentaries and with supposed abductees who have, like, footage. You think you would. We keep clamoring for footage. We keep clamoring for that piece of, of physical evidence. We're talking about their physicality. We keep clamoring for that physical evidence 
and that data that goes beyond anecdotal data. But the reality is the realness of this lives somehow in the storytelling and in the sharing of our lives honestly. It lives in that honest communication person to person. That to me is not an alien from another planet. That is something much deeper. And I, I feel like, um, like to me, that documentary just cut through all the 2017 until now BS. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not even a big Roswell guy anymore. But hey, I'm back on board with Roswell because <laughs> because it just seems like, oh, yeah, that's right. Roswell, like what tw from 2017 on, it's like they want us to have amnesia about the very topic that they're trying to take over. Like, don't pay attention to anything that happened prior to this Tic Tac footage and this Nimitz thing. Everything else is, uh, you know, we're not even going to regard that. And somehow it worked on a level, even for me, to where I woke up and went, oh, yeah, right. This other stuff is still in question, is still, you know, real to that extent. But that the phenomenon at large really is communicated through, uh, I don't know, through, again, honest storytelling. I guess that's the best way I can put it. Honest storytelling. What an interesting phrase to use. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, I think that there's a depth that, well, for instance, I mean, they try to tackle the high strangeness aspects and, you know, they did the best they could in the time allotted to them, I suppose. And it did get to a lot of it. Um, that's honest storytelling. The not honest storytelling is, um, you know, the surface level, I saw a thing or I had something happen to me. And now I'm going to tiptoe around what that was and tell you what I think you will find acceptable. And I hope you don't laugh at me. And when you do, my response will be to obsessively try to get more footage and stuff to go, no, I know what I saw. This is real. And now you can't deny it. And like everything you've got is just like a stoplight or something in the distance. None of that stuff matters. You know, what really matters is a quote, heart to heart is, you know, someone like Whitley Strieber sitting down and looking in the camera straight faced and saying, this happened to me. And the this is so dynamic that it can't really be captured in words. It can only be felt. There's something about it that can be felt. And it, it touches that core of almost the myth-making core in us, where these things are more real than real. When we get back, we are going to make Jeremy tell us about his own experiences. Why is he even here? I mean, he's here for some reason. He's here because he, not because he's never had experiences. Jeremy mentioned uh, communion. and But something drew him to this whole field which he has been in for years he says at one point in the book that once you have a paranormal experience you never forget it and a lot of you would agree with that like me i remember what happened to me in 1985 like it was yesterday because it busted up my whole worldview and we're all in that same boat every single one of us who's had a close encounter experience seen a ufo or a lot of other things. There's remote viewing, there's OBE experiences, there's uh, near-death experiences. You've all, a lot of you have had all kinds of different things like this. And when we get back, we're going to go deeper with Jeremy Vaney into just why he is here 
And when this all started, aliens, the first and final disclosure, an easygoing, fun book that just happens to be pretty darn serious and really very intense. We'll be, well, Free Dreamlanders were saying goodbye. Subscribers, we're going right on from here. Jeremy, speaking of time, or we, we weren't doing that, but now we are. Uh, let's, let's go back in time. You're a bambino, a little boy, and your world is poured out. What happened? <laughs> well, um, sort of as a joke to myself, the thing that I keep going to in the book is this UFO encounter, which was the thing that woke me up. And the reason I say going back to it as a joke is because um, I've had a bunch of experiences, but I just stick with this one. And I, and I take as much information from it as I can uh, in different sections of the book. Um, so what that was I, I, in full was driving to Vermont uh, from Massachusetts to visit my grandparents with my mother and sister. My mom's in the front seat uh, driving, and my sister is in the passenger seat, and I'm sitting behind my mom. And somewhere along the Vermont-New Hampshire border, this is at night, of course, on a desolate highway, of course, um, there's a field, and there's mountains, and then there's other mountains. And between the further mountain set, as I remember it, um, was uh, something my mother saw first and then alerted us to it which was a, an oval or round-shaped um, self-luminescent green object that had porthole windows running down the center, had red and blue blinking lights on it. The top half was spinning one way, the bottom half was spinning the other way, and it was just sort of tilted on its axis, spinning like that. And uh, my initial, this was in eighth grade, and my, my initial reaction was to think it was fake. I mean, it looked like a toy, Fake meaning like the only thing I had to go by in Massachusetts, there was a lit Sitco gas sign that was all the rage back then. Uh, sort of very Vegas for, for Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, I likened it to that in my head, except that, um, you know, my mom wasn't slowing down. So she was zipping around a corner and getting out of there. And uh, I had some time to watch it out the back windshield. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this doesn't make sense. What is this? And then it dawned on me, oh, UFO. For some reason, my sister could not see it. Um, and I don't know, she was reading a book. Maybe she would have to have climbed over my mother. Maybe it was angled at the sky such a way that, but I think she was just disinterested and just, it was there for me and my mom for whatever reason. And when we well, got to our know, grandparents' house, it, there's a weird mm -hmm. directionality in all of this. You mentioned that in the book and I've experienced that too, Yeah, where, you know, from one angle, you can see something, and then two inches away, you can't see it. Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, yeah, and we'll, we can get to that in a sec. Uh, I just want to finish up and say, when we got to our grandparents' house, it's late at night, and we, we thought, we'll tell them about this. They'll think we're crazy, whatever. And it turned out that, no, our uncle, who lived with them, uh, had seen a UFO himself. He had Time Life Mysteries of the Unexplained lying on the coffee table, and it was this weird synchronicity to my eighth grade mind that sort of woke me up out of myself and felt like there was something puppeteering this in some way. 
Um, so I'm not sure that that was the first experience. Um, I don't think it was, uh, but that was, that was the one that woke me up and made me looking, start looking at other experiences and putting stuff together. Um, but when I went on a, you know, years later, when I published my first book, I went on a radio interview in Vermont and a caller called in and said at around the same time, uh, as that UFO sighting, uh, he had seen the same thing flying over the treetops, uh, slowly, I think was just sort of drifting over the treetops. And he said, the really weird thing was the fact that it was so bright and green as if it wanted to be seen, like this should be waking everyone up. This should be, everyone should be seeing this and reporting this. Where is it? Why isn't, and, and if they want to hide, why aren't they camouflaged? And I thought, God, that's so brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? Like, yeah, why aren't they camouflaged? And yet, why can't anyone see them when they aren't? These are, this is the core contradiction. Annie used to call it a theater in the sky. And yet, it is completely buried in all kinds of secrecy, so much that you can look at it, you can see it, you can know it's there, it can come into your house. Two nights ago, a friend had took pictures of a UFO over her house. This morning, she woke up with her arms covered with bruises. No memory of whatsoever of what caused the bruises. They weren't there last night when she went to bed. But it's like, you know, the thing, it looked at her, and then most close encounter witnesses would say, well, she, they came into her house, and they, did, they probably even took her out. She was probably abducted last night. And she said, what should I do to me? And I said, well, you should relax and say to yourself, I, you know, I want to remember what, what caused these bruises. She said, well, should I get hypnotized? What do you say to that, Jeremy? Nope. I agree with you. I think... It, I think... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, the science of hypnosis, which nobody in this field wants to hear, but I keep saying it anyway, the science is that it is a great tool for behavior modification, not a great tool for memory retrieval. And if it ever was good for memory retrieval, it really isn't now because... Uh, all of this has been so polluted with our expectations, with the images, what we expect to see, with choosing a hypnotist who appeals to us. Um, you know, all of this stuff sort of preloads us to give a certain narrative um, that is maybe part real, part true, but maybe part imaginal. And we won't know the difference. We'll think it's all real. That's the problem with hypnosis is that People who are wrong, I mean, studies have shown this, people who are absolutely wrong about their hypnotically retrieved memories are the ones who defend them the hardest in these studies as it's having a, been real. It's a real problem, hypnosis. Uh, I was talking to a writer the other day who was, was fishing around writing for a magazine like The Atlantic or Harper's in New Yorker. He's the type of writer who could get published in those publications, that level of publication. And he basically was interested in showing that it was all false memory syndrome, all essentially the, what Carl Sagan said in The Demon Haunted World, that the whole thing uh, rests on false memories generated by hypno hypnotic regression. And of course, I think to myself of the letters we, that we all save and save for communion after communion is thousands upon thousands of people who had never been hypnotized, never heard of anybody who had been hypnotized. And yet we're having experiences that were really much weirder than the ones I had. But uh, we, 
we're in a situation where hypnosis now is a, is an engine of folklore because of what you say. Is there any other way to deal with these memories? That, or to, to this lady, she has the bruises. They're there. The UFOs were there the night before. She took pictures of them, and they're real. So, what do I tell her? I mean, I don't. I said to her, "Don't get hypnosis. Just ask yourself to remember." But w- won't that be another form of confabulation? In 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 effect, a sort of self hypnosis. I mean, I don't know. Jacques Vallée used to say, um, bring them back to the site of wherever it happened and ask them questions and just try to get them to remember naturally. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess my answer to that would be it's okay. It's okay to have missing time. It's okay to, to not know. The parts that you do know are the puzzle pieces to work with. And it doesn't matter really if you, what the in-between is, whether the in-between part comes to you or not. Um, I mean, my thinking is that um, it's quite possible that if you're brought somewhere where your brain isn't, (laughs) for instance, if you're brought out of your body or if you're put in another state of mind or wherever you are isn't physical in the way that this place is physical, that maybe it's not going to imprint on your brain as memory um, in the same way that experiences here would. And so just don't even... You know, that's a, you can chase that white whale <laughs> all you want. I, I think doing it, um, you have to, I think just like the disclosure people, all right, I think we all have to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? I think that's the first step. Now, it seems more obvious with this, except it really isn't until you see whoever your friend is here like five years from now. If five years from now she's gone down a bunch of rabbit holes because she got hypnosis or she clung on to an answer and is now, you know, uh, in someone else's delusion, like some UFO researcher's delusion, um, then did she, was she ever engaging honestly with what was, you know, communicating with her essentially in the first place? So I think we have to keep as pure as possible and just sit still for a minute and ask ourselves, okay, what is what is my natural tendency? What do I want to respond to this with? What do I want to do with it? And before doing that, why do I want to do that? Where does that lead me and why do I want to do that? And I think if you just ask that without answering it, something will come to you by way of uh, taking away that want, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I think it's a, a false, I think the whole hero's journey with all of this, even to some extent, is irrelevant anymore. We just need, we need to do different. Let's put it that way. Right. And so we can't be, as sort of Terrence McKenna said, I think, uh, you know, something along, along the lines of um, what, don't, you know, don't get too obsessed with the, you know, when you're, you know, on the psychedelic trip anyway, of all the, the flash and the magic of it. I'm, that He didn't say that, but I'm butchering it, folks. But, uh, but it's basically that. Don't get obsessed with the obvious thing that you think happened. Just sit with it and see if other questions about the experience don't come up that are deeper than that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to see what I, can, what I can do with her and uh, try to... I mean, it's hard with somebody who just had something happen to them because they're raw with it, right? Like they want yeah. to do something and find out. So what know, I, what there I is I said, no good answer. What I said to her is just relax and... 
and ask yourself if you know if you feel comfortable remember some of this what what caused the bruises and um that's where she kind of is now now i want to get you've studied you've been involved in abduction studies for a while uh and you did a unique study called project core can you tell us about that yeah, uh, that was the late, great Jeff Ritzman and me. Uh, and somehow we roped in Dr. Tyler Cokejohn and <laughs> some of his, uh, his uh, colleagues um, at the university he was at. I won't say it because the university wasn't associated with the project, but these scientists were. And essentially it was the first and, to my knowledge, only uh, scientifically valid um, study or questionnaire uh, for experiencers. How did it work? Uh, you would go online. We had a, it, it was anonymous. Um, yeah, well, you would have to. So you would go online and anonymously, you know, we had a bunch of questions that we, that were interesting, interesting to us in particular. And yeah. then we had a, you know, if you want to tell your, your bigger story here, go ahead and do that sort of section. Mm -hmm. So there were certain things that we we're looking for in terms of commonalities between experiencers of, of everything <laughs> from the spiritual to the paranormal, to the ufological, you know, the whole umbrella. Did and it was, it? uh, God, I, I'd have to remember. I know, um, I think Jeff did a thing on blood type, which I know everyone has heard from other studies at some yes. point. Um, yeah, there are certain races that seem to have more of these experiences, seemingly. I mean, it was a small study, and, um, you know, it also depends on who your audience is and, you know, all that. Yeah. I wish it were bigger. Uh, but it does look as though, like, Native American um, and Celtic people uh, seem to have a go with it, <laughs> a go of it with, uh, they, with the they, paranormal. We found that true in the communion letters, too. When we made lists hmm. of all the people who had written us, the number of Irish last names, and it was startling. And then, then the Native American last names, insofar as we could tell there were Native American last names, were a significant second in terms of numbers. So, um, incidentally, folks, if you see me shifting around too much and Jeremy looking sort of vague, it's because we're both in very hot spaces and we're, we're literally wilting. Um, it's, it's intense. <laughs> the heat is very intense. What's what's it like out there in Hawaii? And don't say it's seventy six, but that's hot for us. Cause I'm gonna come choke you. So what? <laughs> what, what no, is, we've been in a drought, so it's I don't know. It's it's really hot, and and I'm in a um, you know a workshop place where the windows have been closed, and there's no mm -hmm. air conditioning. So uh, yeah, I remember that. It's space. it's it's just, yeah baking in here. <laughs> I spent some time with Jeremy and Carol uh, some years ago. It was a lot of fun. I have to tell you, they live in a lava field, folks. Um, <laughs> how many microquakes do you have in a day? Two or 300 at least, right? Yeah, we don't feel them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a perfect place for someone who does this kind of podcasting and is steeped in ambiguities to live, I think. So... Project Corp, did it say anything about what the people, 
what kind of worlds they were from? Did they have a lot of indication of traumatized childhoods or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I don't remember if they, I don't remember if we had that. I just don't remember if we had that on there. Definitely artistic people, people who consider themselves artists and musicians was like, you know, very high <laughs> as opposed to business people and, you know, purely logically minded people, people who, um, uh, you know, we found sort of tricksterish George by way of George Hansen theory stuff of, um, uh, people living, um, not marginal lives, but, uh, betwixt and between states. Um, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Now we're in a situation where in my perception, there's been a long period without a lot of, of close encounter activity, but it's changed very suddenly. Now I'm suddenly getting letters from all over the place from people saying, well, something happened to me last night. I woke up with bruises. I have weird memories, et cetera, and so forth. So it seems to be kind of ramping up again. Now, I always had the thought, and this is not something I was told, uh, at least if it was told to me, I, I wasn't uh, uh, aware of it, it could be subliminal, that the visitors might show up in numbers if we're about to lose our planet. And I base that on the theory that they want us to survive. And we may find out what they are if we do lose our, start to lose our planet, I think. Because right now we don't know what they are. We don't know if they're part of our world, come from another world, or exactly what it's all about. Now, uh, in the book... Uh, you talk about things like let me let me just get to the page here. I'm I'm going somewhere, folks. I assure you. Uh, slower than I would like, but I am definitely going somewhere. Um. All right. Okay. You don't forget anything about an abduction, for it is seared into your memory like a cattle brand. Why do you say that? Because I want to know what you remember. What I remember? Um, well, I say that because um, it's sort of in response to the idea that that anecdotal evidence isn't evidence. And again, I think the power of it lies in the quote unquote anecdote in, in the, you know, the uh, reliving of the experience. This isn't this isn't some you know, this is so out of the ordinary that it imprints upon you. It's not. It's not, you, again, like, I guess I sort of give an example of like, you can, for, you may forget or something, some little details, um, but nevertheless, the, the event itself happened and you don't forget the event. And we can get lost in trying to say like, well, if you forgot, uh, you know, red and blue blinking lights, you know, where were they on the ship? Like, if I forget that, it doesn't matter. I saw, <laughs> a, you know, let's not forget, it's a uh, self-luminescent green porthole windows with red and blue blinking lights. It doesn't matter really where those lights are. It matters that nothing I have described should have been an object in the sky, according to our own sense of technology and and all that. So um, I think that the basic 
thing of it. I, I mean, I don't know how you lose something so traumatic. I don't know how you would forget something like that. Um, now, obviously, that's not talking about the missing time parts, which, again, you know, may, we may not have access to. But there's always something there for you to remember. And um, and that's the part you don't forget because it's so out of the ordinary that, you know, I, I just don't I don't have a scientific answer as to right. why you wouldn't forget that. Well, I, I had traumatic amnesia, which is also a very real thing. It's just, it's what happens when you're in a car wreck, for example, and you can't remember a thing about the wreck. Uh, and sometimes it can be recovered, that memory, and sometimes it can't. And uh, I was in a state of traumatic amnesia, especially after the second experience. The first experience at the cabin, I don't remember being feeling abnormal the next day, except I, I probably did to some extent. But then the second experience when I was taken an abducted boy. I mean, that was, it was unforgettable. But the next morning, the memories were all a jumble. They, were, they weren't present. I thought it was an owl that had come into the house and all these things that were weirdly kicking around in my head. It took over the next week, week and a half for the memories to come back. And when they did, of course, and I saw that I'd, at, as I put it at the time, been taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. I thought, Whitley, you have become ridiculous, and you're not even that old yet. Um, but now I don't think it's ridiculous. I do think that there is uh, something watching us, and that these are instruments are probably instruments that use us to do that. And it worries me if the United States is going to take out all their instruments. That's like saying to the Russians... Uh, you, 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 you've got a bunch of ghosts living with you. Get rid of them. By the way, just on that note, this just flashed into my mind to say here, can we take a pause for a second and, and realize that uh, Donald Trump documents of a top secret nature at Mar-a-Lago for keeping any documents. It doesn't even matter that they're top secret. It's just that they don't belong to him. But they also you happen to some of them be top secret. About that. I don't usually talk politics on the show. But, well, yeah, here's I, here's I, I, what I, I want to say about that's not yeah. wait 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 that's I'm not talking politics. What okay, I'm saying I, is I'll let you let's take, keep going. Okay, just take a pause and think about that, and now look at Lou Elizondo, uh, sort of I guess what leaking Navy footage or whoever it was that originally leaked Navy footage or brought forth Navy footage, and the the response from the military was like. Well, that may have been ours. It may not. Uh, okay, it was ours. Does that jive with you with something that no, is they, they alien and top they secret? Said, they said the opposite. They but said, eventually they did. Eventually, eventually they said, yeah, we, that's, I mean, you know, and then they start doing hearings and bringing this stuff up. I mean, eventually they say, yeah, we don't know what this stuff is. Right? Like that's, but how do you... Donald Trump can't keep documents at his house. How do you have footage and no one's in jail unless it was a setup or it was, you know, either allowed to happen well, or you know, he's I went part through, of the I, disinfo? I, I was, uh, uh, Danny Sheehan, uh, who was uh, his lawyer, was uh, Lou's lawyer, had a, quite a fight with the Defense Department about this very thing. And... Um, I don't think they had legal grounds to sue to uh, arrest 
loot. And I, I think that could mean that the, that what they what was released wasn't a high enough level of classification. And there's an awful lot in this whole field which is not classified in any way. It's just hidden away so people can't find it. And I think this is essentially what was true of those videos. Um, but what, what interests me more than the fact that the Navy Department has ended up the source of these leaks is why the Air Force is totally silent about all of this and has been from the beginning. It hasn't ever, not a peep. And is it because they know about the abductions and the abductions are much more physical experiences than we may have been suggesting to each other earlier in the show? And they are being done by people from some other realm of reality that could easily be another planet as something else. And the bottom line is the, the Air Force can't do a thing about them. And is that the real reason for all of this secrecy over all of these years? Because I think it may be. Hmm. My fear is that abductions are next. You know, abductions are the next thing to co-op and make public and create some other narrative out of other than what they are, whether they know what they are or not. You know, well, I mean, you, 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 I, I rue the day that they start talking about abductions publicly and then want to investigate us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because they're going to, they're going to, they're, they'll do a lot. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to do a lot, an awful lot to prevent that from happening. Uh, that they don't want the, the abductions to come front and center, I don't think, because they have to then say two things. This is being done to you and your kids. Something was coming into your house in the middle of the night, and kidnapping you and your kids, screwing with your lives, maybe driving you insane in some cases, hurting you physically, raping you, all of this. And we knew about it. And our choice was not to warn you, but simply to to lie and say it was all a big laugh and therefore you were part of the humor your suffering was part of our joke and i don't think people don't like that too much so i think that's why the air force keeps its its head down it wants to dodge that bullet okay well i kind of hope you're right why do you hope i'm right i hope i'm wrong well, I mean, I hope you're right in the sense that it's not going to end up being some the next public spectacle where they, you know, do hearings with experiencers and that sort uh, of thing. I hope not, but I do worry about that. Uh, well, you know, I love. Can I ask you a question? You, well, let me. Yeah, uh, let me. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Sorry. Um, what you're seeing, folks, is a screw up. Uh, we talked over each other. We had it on pause while I went and got some water so I wouldn't faint in this hellhole of extreme heat that I'm working in. And Jared is in his own. Um, but he's a Hawaiian, so he's much more sanguine about everything. You can see that. I'm an uptight mainlander, the worst kind. Uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, you can ask me a question, but I, I want to go on down the road. And talk about your plans for Dreamland in just a second. But go ahead. Yeah. What's, what is it? 
Well, it's actually, I mean, I tried to answer this myself. This is a question Carol had after watching the documentary, which is, uh, why did you want to go, if you thought it was evil and all this terrible stuff happened, why would you want to go back and bring people there uh, to the cabin and try to call this phenomenon out and, you know, capture on film and all of that? Um, and I That's tried to explain why. to her my reasoning, but what was yours? Yeah, well, okay, uh the reason I tried, I wanted to call it out was because it was there and it was, it was willing to interact with me. It did seem very dark and very evil. And in many respects, it still does, but not entirely because I've, I've developed a relationship with some part of it. I do not know what part could be all of it, but with some part of it, that's very productive. Like I'm writing a book now. And once again, it's heavily involved in the actual writing process, semi-physically. I mean, it's there in the room. You can feel it. You can hear it. It will fill my body with energy, touch me. I mean, it's amazing that I'm, I have this in my life. But at the same time, things have happened recently that would have been just unspeakably terrifying. Uh, I was nearly driven psychotic a, a couple of weeks ago. In, a, in what appears to have been a kind of assault that happened at a friend's house in Texas. So, and, and, and there are things that were done to my website that were so insidious where not only was the website hacked, but an attempt was made to, to make it look like somebody I love dearly was the, was the culprit. And th this goes on like this. There's something so so sinister about it and something so wonderful about it all at the same time. That's why I keep coming back for more. I haven't well, been burned down that, yet, that... but I'm close. Go ahead. <laughs> that's the part that the straights don't understand, Whitley, I think is the, the part of, you know, why risk your life or other people's lives if you really think that you're in danger like that. I don't and, think they were ever um, in danger at the cabin. I wouldn't have... Uh, we, Listen, I, I laid it out to the parents of the children that would come to the cabin. I laid it out very clearly what was going on up there. And not a single person said, well, I, I don't want my kid to go up there anymore. Uh, they all were keen to have their kids continue going up there. So either, either they've got Stockholm Syndrome, they're under mind control, or there's something about this that we can't articulate that we do want to face. Right. Yep. Okay. So that's where that is. Now, I want to go on, and because we are talking now to our subscribers, and these are the people who pay to keep this site going, and thank you very much, and thank God, because I love this site. I love doing this work. This is my work and my life, and without you, I couldn't be doing it. Um, what are your plans? Why should we be excited about you being one of the Dreamland hosts? And I think we should be. Oh boy. Well, I realize that this is a, a big responsibility and a big opportunity. And the opportunity to me is to bring uh, new voices that you may not have heard. I feel like because I'm only doing it once a month, I have the ability to call <laughs> people yeah. who uh, I think are really exciting and different and um, and also to, I don't know, approach it from different angles that we might not be familiar with, um, even 
even, even those of us who've been paying attention to this for a long time. So I think new voices and different angles um, excites me uh, to be able to, and a wider spectrum, you know, than just doing uh, experiencer. Um, you know, when I did the experience, which was great, uh, that was talking to experiencers mostly. And um, yeah. this is, you know, all over the place. So I think it's going to be good. Uh, do you have any specifics about your next, your first interview? Yeah. Well, my first, I've already recorded the first two. So um, the first interview is with a historian um, named Alicia Puglianisi. Um, so her latest book is In Whose Ruins, which is about uh, the origin of the mound builder myths and where that comes from. And her work in doing this sprang from her first book, which is called Common Phantoms, which was about... Um, a history of uh, psychic research in the 1800s. And so we talk about some surprising things, I think, um, in terms of even in psychic research, uh, the, a connection to the oil industry, a connection to, I don't know, just where does this stuff, uh, racism, I mean, essentially, you know, in terms of in whose ruins, um, but not, but like systemic. In other words, uh, some of these myths that we've heard about, uh, about Native American mound builders stem from an actual uh, wanting to build a mythology around a place where business wanted to, for instance, take water or take oil or take resources. Um, and she's laying this out. And I'm just mind blown by her work. I, I just think it's like, I, I can't believe... I've never heard of this person before. Oh, that sounds but great. The other th well, the other thing is, like, both her, the first two guests, actually, it probably will end up being the first three guests, but the second, his name is Vuk. Uh, he doesn't want to go by his, his last name. He's um, from Bosnia. And he talked, he's a biologist, uh, or has, he was a biology teacher. He has a biology background. And he talked about Gaia theory. But he takes it from sort of a materialist perspective and then builds from there into consciousness stuff. And his thinking is so good on a whole lot of this stuff that I've seen so far that I, I'm thrilled to be able to give him an audience. And like I was going to say, all th uh, both these guests and perhaps the third um, are people who this type of show is not in their wheelhouse. And so to be able to have them say yes and come on, even though, you know, they're not really sure if they want to get into this world or not uh, yeah. is great. And for different reasons, him for business reasons, because he's not sure that it will not affect him negatively. And her, I think just because she hasn't delved into this world yet. And, um, right. you know, so they didn't know what to expect. And I, I, I just, there's something about that that I'm so grateful to be able to do, you know? Well, good, and it sounds like it's a, it's a, a totally different approach from mine, which is exactly what I was looking for. Uh, it, it is not it is not Dreamland continued. It is Jeremy Vaney's Dreamland, different Dreamland. Right. But, I can't do a, a an impression of you that you're going to be happy with. So I've tried doing that on the phone, and it doesn't yeah. go over well. I, I'm good with voices. Uh, but I'm not good with impressions. I can, I can, I can actually. My brother thinks I'm very bad with voices, but what he doesn't know is that he's gotten calls from people that he thought were real 
that were actually me. <laughs> and because I, every time I call him in a purposely fakey voice to throw him off, he says, Whitley, it's obviously you. But then when I really do it, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't realize it. <laughs> he should understand that not to answer the phone when it's from an unnamed number, because it's always me. And it's always a fake <laughs> voice. Um, trying to sell him things and, uh, or, uh, trying to get him to go out and take the air out of his car tires, things like that. We play a lot of jokes on each other. All right. Uh, now you never really touched on, or I tried to get you to, but you never got there. The experiences that sort of started you in your life. I recall a moment in the book where you were telling your mother about this and your mother says, uh, you're reading too many comic books. Why did she say that? What were you telling her? Let's see if I can get you to talk about it that way. Well, that one's, that's easy. I mean, that one was specifically something, you know, 15 years old. Uh, at the time, I kept waking up at 3.30 every morning for no reason. And um, presumably at 3.30, uh, I heard my bedroom door open which, cause it makes a thup sound when it, when it opens, um, and sat up in bed and watched a being, you know, sort of in shadow, <laughs> walk into the middle of the, not exactly the middle of the room, but walk into the room and it was babbling at me and it had, so I could see its head bobbing. It was sounded like it was physically talking to me, although I couldn't make out what it was saying. And it had something long and sharp in its left hand, which, to my 15-year-old mind, I thought sword, <laughs> probably not a sword. And uh, I said to it, uh, Ma, what are you doing? Go back to sleep. What are you doing in my room? Go back to sleep. Because she was the only other person in the, the house at the time. My parents were divorced. My sister was away at college. And the second I said that, I thought, this isn't your mother. You know what this is. And as I thought that, I was in complete fight, flight, or freeze mode. And uh, I fled. I just threw the covers over my head and passed out, essentially. <laughs> and that was that, you know? And so I think in talking to my mom, it was asking her, you know, I'd asked her, hey, did you come into my room? No. Um, around this time, you know, I talking about marks on the body, I had found an equilateral triangle on my shoulder, um, or shoulder blade. Um, at some point when my sister came home uh, for college break, this time I did check the clock uh, and it was 4.37 in the morning. I heard my bedroom door open. Um, I was lying facing the clock and saw that it was 4.37 in the morning. I'm scared. I, I don't want to even know what's going on. Um, I roll over facing the wall and... I don't know why I think like pulling the cover over my head or just facing the wall is going to like get rid of this awful yeah. evil thing, you know, right. but this is what I got to work with. So I face the wall and I'm thinking like, okay, I got to check this out. And I make some joke. Oh, because for some reason I thought they're here for your sister. Like I can't get that out of my head. They're here for your sister. And that's not enough to get me out of bed. So I make a joke to myself. Yeah, I got to, I got to pee anyway. So I'll just get up. So I try to blow it off. And as I moved one way, uh, 
it's not paralysis. It's that it's as though I'm like the entire musculature of my body moved the other way and was glued to the bed. So, so I'm like literally, ah, and I, uh, I did this once and I thought to myself, well, you know, if you're going to tell the kids at school this tomorrow, you know, you better make sure it's not your sheets holding you back. So I tried again to get up and I couldn't do it. And, uh, that's all I, that's all I honestly remember, but I wrote it down at the time. And when I go back and look at the notes, I see that I wrote that I felt a sort of a sharp tingle in my head at some point, and then I could move, but I didn't. <laughs> so there was that. Um, so there's that there's, you know, there's just little things like that. So nothing like hugely conclusive and, you know, until, you know, arguably until 2001, uh, when I finally saw them face to face. But back then, these are the types of things that were adding up to me as after that big UFO sighting. And then thinking about things that had happened prior to the UFO sighting uh, that are sort of extraordinary. And I just thought like, okay, I think I'm an abductee. I'm going to try to tell my mom this. And uh, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> no. Tell us about face to face. Is in 2001, did you say? Yeah, this is, uh, in 2001, um, I had a girlfriend at the time who came to visit, really meet me for the first time from, uh, well, I'll, I'll keep her anonymous, wherever she's from. And, um, I had never, this, this is going to get a little, not graphic, but eh, just kind of like cringe. Um, I was a virgin at the time. And part of my um, fears of having sex or being in a relationship were that this phenomenon could affect somebody. You know, am I going to pass this on? Um, so, but I threw caution to the wind. <laughs> after after nine eleven happened, a lot of people were having sex, so yeah. I was one All of right. them. And yeah, and so she came to visit and. Um, you know, night one went swimmingly and my fear was always that visitors would show up for some reason. They didn't show up. So I breathed a sigh of relief. And then night two, uh, there they were. And what happened was, uh, so we're both lying on this mattress on a floor, which was my bed in Queens, New York, which sounds like a crack house, but it wasn't, I, I swear. <laughs> it's just poverty people. And uh, what woke me up was a bright light coming in through the window and she was sleeping to my left and I looked at her and she's not responding. So I figure, okay, no biggie. But I decided to sort of crawl, half crawl over her and look through the shades to see if I can see what that is. And all I can see is this bright light. But again, I look down at her. She's not moving. If she's okay, I'm okay. So I crawl back over and roll to my right-ish and look up, and there are these three short gray to the blue hue, not like completely gray, but sort of to the bluish, blueish hue, beings in tunics, uh, you know, the big eyes, the whole deal. And um, I, I scream uh, as loud as I can, except nothing is coming out. And what they're emoting to me almost seems playful, like, come with us you know, sort of childlike and playful, yeah. which it affects my thinking later about this, about the disconnect between the terror I feel and what's actually happening. 
But in any event, the next thing I know, and it's there's no transition, I'm still in my underwear as I went to bed, but I'm standing in this room and before me are th- this row of tables um, with naked humans on them. And the one closest to me is this blonde woman, maybe in her 50s, uh, lying there. They're all immobile. And the beings are standing around her and just sort of gesturing like, huh? Like, this is what we do for a living. Look at this kind of thing. Like a presentation. And at this point, I'm not uh, scared. I'm, you know, maybe I've been pacified in some way, but I'm not scared. And I'm just thinking, why am I here seeing this? And a female voice that I've heard in other situations says, uh, because you've always wanted to remember an abduction. And then we end up having what I remember as being a rather long conversation that, and that's it. Uh, and when I get up the next morning, I remember the conversation. And at this point in my life, I've written a book about this stuff. Um, I, I'm writing for UFO magazine. Uh, and yet I don't want this to be real. <laughs> like, as that guy who does this for quote unquote a living or a hobby or whatever it is, uh, yeah. and who has these experiences already and already believes he's an experiencer, when it happens, I still don't want it to be real. So I allowed myself to forget the conversation. I never wrote it down. And I just said, she didn't wake up. This couldn't have happened. This could not have happened. Cut to a year later. And now I've grown up and gotten a real bedroom in the same house uh, with a real bed. And in other words, another roommate had moved out and gotten married and I took his room. And uh, so I'm, I'm lying there um, and I'm woken up again by a bright light. But this time it's where my wall should be. <laughs> no, wow. It's not out the window. Yeah, I'm looking out the window and there's nothing. And I roll over and look. And where my wall should be is it's just this bright, diffuse white light. And as I'm looking at it, my nose starts to bleed down the back of my throat. And uh, I should say that before I went to bed, I mean, this gets into a whole other can of worms, but I've got this Kundalini energy that's alive in me that if I shut up for a second, it will take over and start doing things. But every now and then it wants to do its own thing. And that night it had done a very pedestrian thing. It hasn't done before since, which is pinch the bridge of my nose as if I think cauterizing my nose, (laughs) maybe for this moment when I would roll over and see this thing and my nose would bleed, it wouldn't bleed out all over the sheets or something. That's all I could surmise of that. That happened. And I sort of, I guess, forgot that that had happened until I got up in the morning and I was sitting in the kitchen and we had this subletting roommate who I had not met. He had just come in and we hadn't had a real chance to talk. So we started talking, getting, you know, playing getting to know you. And as we're talking, my nose started bleeding. And when my nose started bleeding, I immediately had a flash to that. And what I realized about that is that the... The, the light or the force field or the whatever it is that was the wall was the same quality of light that had come in through my window the year before. Uh, and so immediately, like, I couldn't ignore any of this. It was like, no, you're, you're awake to this now. There's no getting around yeah. it. So there you have it. Folks, that's where Jeremy is. And he is a, an adherent to the same thing that Ann Strieber is. 
and which is to keep everything in question. And his experiences have been at once so concrete and so ambiguous that he has an excellent, a wonderful opportunity to do that, and he does it. I think we're headed for some very interesting dreamlands, Jeremy, and thank you for joining the team. I really am very grateful to you. Well, I am thrilled that you invited me, and thank you. Jeremy's new book, Aliens, The First and Final Disclosure. You'll enjoy it. It'll it'll give you all kinds of fascinating ideas. It'll take you on a real, real ride. But to where? (laughs) I'll let you figure that out, but just don't miss it. Aliens, the first and final disclosure. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.